Good evening and welcome again. Thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence tonight. We are looking at Genesis chapter 4, the passage that James read a moment ago. And thank you to James for reading our scripture tonight and thank you for being here. We're grateful for the opportunity to be together tonight and we hope and pray that the time we spend together will benefit all of us. I do want to say very quickly that uh, we appreciate those of you who are visiting. We have numerous visitors come our way each week. We hope and pray that you feel welcome. We would love to have you as a part of our church family and so if you have any questions about the church here or how you might contribute, I know that the elders would be more than happy to sit down and talk to you, answer any questions that you might have. Tonight we look at Genesis chapter 4 as we continue our study of characters, characters in the Old and New Testaments. And we're going to be looking at a number of various characters throughout our study over the course of this next year. Tonight we turn our attention to Cain and Abel, the biological children of Adam and Eve, the first couple. And so we want to look at Genesis chapter 4. And interestingly, you know, we often talk about what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15. That those things that had been written before time were written for our learning. And of course, we can go back and look at the Old Testament, and there are a lot of great principles that we can learn from them. When you come to the New Testament, the Bible has something to say about both Cain and Abel. For example, in Matthew chapter 23, in about verse 35, Jesus talked about the blood of righteous Abel. Then, of course, in Hebrews chapter 11, you remember, the Hebrew writer included Abel in Faith's Hall of Fame. And, of course, the book of Jude in Jude 11. Jude in the long ago would say, Woe unto them that go in the way of Cain. And so you have two completely different children. Both had the same parents, but sadly, their course in life, completely different. So tonight I want to begin... And I want us to start by taking into consideration the fact that there is a contrast in offerings. And really what we're going to be talking about tonight, the offering made by both Cain and Abel. So with that in mind, note if you would what the text says again. And James, I appreciate you reading this text and just by way of trying to emphasize the point tonight. Look again at verse 1. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. Now, some would say that this was in response to the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. And she thought that her son Cain was a fulfillment of that promise. But we know that in Genesis 3.15, the writer there, Moses, of course, and the promise made had to do with the Messiah, the coming of the Christ, the one who would ultimately redeem the human family from sin. And so in verse 2, the Bible says, Then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, note if you would verse 3. Now we're going to note the contrast in offerings. One offering, that being what Cain offered, was from the field. Abel, however, offered from the firstlings of his flock. And so here's what the record says. In the process of time, 
It came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now, if you read any number of commentators, and if you listen to various people talk about this account in Genesis chapter 4, there are any number of things people will say as to why the Lord was receptive to the offering of Abel and did not receive the offering of Cain. The bottom line is simply this. One was offered by faith, that being Abel's offering. The other was not offered by faith. Now, here's a question. How does faith come? The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now, you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, following the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Note, if you would, again, verse 21. You remember following the announcement of the promised seed, and that seed was in promise and ultimately pointing to the coming of the Christ the Lamb of God. Now, John in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, tells us that this plan, this promise, existed before time began. And so God, in His infinite wisdom, had a plan already in place so that when Adam and Eve transgressed the law of God in the Garden of Eden, that plan would begin to unfold. And so throughout the Old Testament, we have the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. And that involved the Christ. That redemptive plan entailed a blood sacrifice, didn't it? That is, Jesus died for the sins of humanity. You remember John the Baptist when he saw Jesus on one occasion? He said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And there are numerous types in the Old Testament pointing to the ultimate antitype, that being Jesus. A good example would be in Exodus chapter 12, the Passover. And you remember the blood was applied to certain places on the doorpost. And if, well, the Lord said that when the death angel came over in the evening, the destroying angel, if he saw the blood, he'd pass over it. Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 tells us that Jesus, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. So that being said, blood sacrifices. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, following the sin of Adam and Eve, note if you would verse 21, also for Adam and his wife the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. I believe that based upon what Moses records here, that there was a blood sacrifice involved here. And you remember there's a principle laid down in Genesis, or rather in Leviticus chapter 17 in about verse 11. And there Moses talked about how the life of the flesh is in the blood. In that same verse he said, it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So there were blood sacrifices offered beginning in the period of the patriarchs. All of those blood sacrifices pointed ultimately to the coming of whom? To the coming of Christ. All who are saved today, and we talk about people of every dispensation of time, whether it be the patriarchs, the Mosaic dispensation, or the Christian age, all people 
will ultimately be saved by one means. That's the blood of Jesus. That's it. So all of these blood sacrifices pointed to the coming of the blood of Christ. In, a, in other words, these blood sacrifices anticipated the sacrificial death of Jesus. And so they enjoyed forgiveness in anticipation of that shed blood. Today we enjoy forgiveness in the most absolute sense of the word. As the Hebrew writer would say in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Now contrast that with Hebrews chapter 10, where regarding the Mosaic dispensation, God said there is a remembrance made every year of those sins. So with that in mind, now let's look at chapter 4 again. Having said all of that, Abel offered a blood sacrifice. Why do you think Abel offered a blood sacrifice? Well, number one, because that's what God had demanded. You remember in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, the Bible says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And the Bible says that God testified that he was righteous. So let's just pause there for a minute. Worship has to be directed by what means? By faith in God. So here is Abel, he offers God a blood sacrifice, and God said he respected that. Cain offers from the fruit of the ground, and the Bible says God did not respect his offering. Somebody might say, well, both offerings may have cost the same, might have taken the same amount of time to prepare, but the bottom line is one was by faith and one was not. Now hold that thought for a minute because I want to come back to it. But there's a second thought here. Secondly, first there is a contrast in the offering. Secondly, we have a conflict following the offering. Look again at verse 5. Following what the text says concerning God, not respecting the gift or offering of Cain. The Bible says Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. And so now we are introduced to the attitude and anger of Cain. Cain was upset because God did not accept his offering. And so the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Now, God's not asking this because He needs information from Cain. God knows exactly what's going on in the mind of Cain. You remember back in Genesis chapter 3, following the fall of Adam and Eve, and God questioned, where are you, Adam? It wasn't for informative purposes, but God wanted Adam to recognize where he stood in his relationship to Almighty God. And so now we have Cain. He's angry. And because of that anger, he's going to ultimately take the life of his brother. So now look at verse 7. In verse 7, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, I have no doubt that sometimes one sin accompanies another sin. In other words, sometimes sin goes hand in hand with other sins. You remember, for example, in 
the great Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said you're not to be angry with your brother without cause. And ultimately, anger can lead to murder. And I understand that. But the word for sin here is really a designation for a sin offering. Adam Clark, in his commentary on this book, says that there are over 100 instances in the Old Testament where this term is found. And I think really what God is saying to Cain is this, look, okay, you have given me something that I didn't ask for by faith. What you have offered does not coincide with my will, but there's a blood sacrifice right here that can be offered on your behalf. Everything will be good. But rather than accept that, he took it a step further. So look now at verse 8. Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the, from the ground. And again, I think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 when he is delivering a series of woes directed toward the religious leader, leaders of his day. And he talks about the blood of righteous Abel. To understand that God sees all, God knows all. And so in verse 11 he said, So now you're cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. He said, when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. I mean, you just killed your brother and now you're, you know, it's this woe is me attitude. And so, verse 14, surely you've driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth and it will be... It will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Now, there have been a lot of people raise the question, What was the mark? I don't know. The text doesn't say. And so it's really fruitless to even go there. But the point is, you've got two young men they both offer sacrifices to God. One's accepted, one is not. Now, let's think thirdly about the consequence of their offerings. When you look back at the life of Abel, he is pictured as a righteous man, isn't he? You have two things that stand out in my mind. Number one, here's a man who lived a life of faith. Secondly, you have a legacy of faith. Look again at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, where the text says, By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And the Bible says that God testified to his gifts, that he was righteous, and he being dead yet speaks. So down through time, the legacy of Abel has stood the test of time in a sense, hasn't it? Abel represents people who have lived by faith. Their lives have been directed by faith. But then the flip side of that 
is Cain. On the one hand, you have the righteous. On the other, you have what I would call a rebel. And you remember, for example, in 1 John chapter 3, when John talked about the message that they had heard, that they were to love one another. In verse 11, he said, Not as Cain, listen to this, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And then he asked, he asked this question, And why did he murder him? Because his gifts were wicked and his brother's righteous. That right there says everything you need to know about how God felt concerning the sacrifice of Cain. What he offered was, in a sense, an abomination to him. So how then is Cain remembered? Well, we think about his iniquity. and The fact that when it's all said and done and the dust settles, he is remembered as an innovator. Now there's some lessons that I think we need to learn from this account. And that is, our life, our worship to Almighty God must, and I would underscore that, must be directed by faith. Everything that we do falls under that banner. Now you remember the Apostle Paul said, we walk by faith and not by sight in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. So everything that we're trying to do is by faith. And again, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So when it comes to our worship, how then do we know how to worship Almighty God? I would grant that we can know there's a God by looking at the universe around us. Our physical body is evidence that there is a Creator. As David said, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. But the only way that we can know the mind of God and the will of God is for Him to reveal that. And so with regard to worship, God has set forth what I would call a pattern for our worship. Just like there is a pattern for how we become a child of God. You remember in Romans 6 when Paul said, Thanks be to God that you obeyed from the heart that form, that pattern of doctrine. You remember in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, when Paul said, Hold fast the form or pattern of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love. So there's this divine pattern. In the New Testament, Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 24, emphasized true worship. True worship would be the kind of worship that is directed by faith. Now here's what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means you do it by His authority, right? So if we're going to do something by the authority of Christ, let me ask this question. Is that something new? Respecting the authority of Almighty God is as old as man. It really goes all the way back to the garden. And when we talk about Adam and Eve, the problem in the garden was they failed to respect the authority of Almighty God. The problem that relates to Cain and his offering. It was a problem of the heart. It was presumptive on his part to assume that God would be pleased with his offering. Why? Because God had already said, this is what I want. Now, are there people today that have become innovative when it comes to 
worshiping God. Do you remember in Colossians chapter 2, Paul talked about will worship? The idea of will worship is worship that has been devised by man. The idea again is we decide what we want to give God and that's what we do. I would like to stand before you tonight and say that churches of Christ all over the world are following the teaching of Almighty God with regard to worship. But please listen very carefully. That is not the case. There are a lot of modern day canes in the body of Christ. When Jude wrote in Jude 11, Woe unto them that go in the way of Cain. Let me just illustrate it like this. When I was a student in Nashville years ago, there was a large congregation just south of school. And on Wednesday nights, for a period of time, many of the students attended there. And it was, as far as I know, it was a good congregation. Some years back, however, the elders got together and they decided that it would be expedient for them to introduce the instrument into worship. And so that's what they did. They have three services. One of those services they call instrumental. In defense of what they were doing, the preacher at that point in time stood in the pulpit and here's what he said. There hasn't been a sermon preached on instrumental music from this pulpit in 30 years. Now listen, that's an indictment, number one, on those who preached at that congregation. Number two, that is an indictment on the eldership. Elders do not have the right to change anything as it relates to worship to Almighty God. Now, they are to uphold what the Bible says. But they can't redefine divine law, which is what they tried to do. Just recently, their preacher left. Been there for many years. And they brought in a new preacher or another preacher to assist another man that they have on staff. The man that they brought on board has a lengthy history in Churches of Christ. As a matter of fact, he preached in the city of Memphis for many, many years. In the 70s, he was as sound as any man you would ever hope to find in the body of Christ. Some years back, an older preacher in the Nashville area, here's what he had to say. He said, this brother has done more to hurt the church of Christ in this city than any man since Jesse Ferguson in the 1800s. That is saying a lot. So why do I tell you that? Well, because just recently, during the Christmas season, they had on Friday night what they called a Friday night candlelight service. They had an instrumental service and then they had an a cappella service. So I thought, you know, I just want to see what they're doing. So I pulled it up and watched some of it. And here's this preacher, an older brother, been around for many, many years, and he is 
standing on the podium, and he's holding something in his hand. Now bear in mind, this is Friday night. He's holding in his hand a communion cup. What we use every Sunday in partaking of the Lord's Supper. And he's talking about the Christmas season. And listen, I'm grateful for people who think about the birth of Christ. I'm thankful that people are thinking about spiritual things. But that aside, he's talking about Christmas and how on the following day that hearts are going to be thinking about the birth of Jesus, da-da-da-da. And he said, but tonight we're going to be thinking about the death of Jesus. And then do you know what he did? They took the Lord's Supper on Friday evening. There is absolutely no authority for that. Not one bit. Now, here is a brother that chided, has chided churches of Christ for what he calls being traditional. And he turns around and embraces what I would call denominational traditionalism. You can't have it both ways. Now you ask, well, what's all that have to do with us? Well, the point is, there are congregations today, they don't think like we think, they don't act like we act, they don't follow the Bible like we try to follow the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that to be arrogant in any way. Our goal is to follow the New Testament. But to understand that there are folks in the body of Christ that are modern-day canes. And listen, when a congregation adopts the instrument, or if you want to start using women in worship service to preach, to teach, in a mixed assembly, or to wait on the Lord's table, if you want women to serve in capacities of leadership, then here's my recommendation. Take the sign down. Take it down. It is... It's an affront to the cause of Christ. Now look, we try to the best of our ability to follow the principles of New Testament Christianity. But if we're not going to follow the principles of New Testament Christianity, then my question is, what do we have to offer the world? Nothing. Our goal is to uphold the truth of Almighty God. And we're trying to point people in the direction of Christ. And to understand that everything that we do is done in submission to the will of Almighty God. God has a pattern. That pattern is His Word. And God desires that we follow that pattern. That pattern tells us what to do to become a child of God. It tells us how to stay among the saved. It instructs us on the work of the church and the worship of the church. Once you deviate from the authority of Jesus Christ, here's the bottom line. There's no shoreline. Once you get out there, how in the world are you going to say anything's wrong? You can't. Why? Because you've already given up the argument of respecting the authority of Almighty God. Can't do it. And there are some congregations in our brotherhood, and there are some elders in congregations all across our brotherhood, they're going to have to give an account to God one day for their innovations. I'd love to hear of an eldership 
that says, you know what, we're going to restudy a certain subject, and then the conclusion is, you know what, we've been doing the right thing for all this time. But every time you hear of an eldership restudying a subject, the bottom line is they're already, they're already wanting to go in a certain direction. And so all they're doing is giving lip service to the fact that this is what we want to do. Well, just do it. Don't go through the pretense of saying we're going to restudy it. Just do it. Either we're going to follow the doctrine of Christ or we are not. Churches of Christ have one thing to offer the world. That's truth. Now, are we benevolent? Yes. Are we caring? Absolutely. But if we take the shingle down of divine truth, we cease to have the right to exist. That's it. So, Cain and Abel. Old story. An old account, but relevant. Let me just add this very quickly. Some of the modern-day innovations that are making their way into the church, I can tell you where they came from. Right out of our universities. That's it. We have some universities in our brotherhood that have gone rogue. They have no more respect for New Testament Christianity than a man in the moon. And so, to me, it's an affront to the people who started those institutions because their goal was to accentuate what the Bible teaches. And those schools are so far from them. And so now, you've got young men and young women that have been trained in these institutions and they're preaching and teaching, they're becoming elders and deacons and then we wonder why do we have problems in the church. I can tell you why we have problems. When you abort the teaching of Almighty God, problems are going to occur. And you look at some of the congregations. I just heard of a congregation this past week in this city, well, actually in the city of Memphis, that's starting a church plant so far out and so far off course, unbelievable. That's where we are. So, let me close tonight by saying this. I appreciate you. I appreciate our elders. I appreciate the fact that the goal here is to simply be a Christian. Nothing more, nothing less. To honor the teaching of Almighty God. To live so that we might be a light in the world. Salt and light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the church here. We thank you for our elders, our deacons, for every member. And Father, we pray that we will be submissive to your word, that we will honor it and cherish it. And Father, we pray that we might do our best to reach out to a lost and dying world to honor your word. And when we worship, we pray that our worship will be in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to come to Christ. I know this lesson tonight wasn't designed for that, but nonetheless, if you're here tonight, you're not a child of God, we encourage you. Listen, here's what the Bible says. God so loved the world, that's you, that He gave His only begotten Son. Christ died for your sins, my sins, all sins. And if we'll respond by an obedient faith to the gospel of Christ, the beauty of that is our sins will be forgiven. We can be added to the church, Acts 2, verse 38 and verse 47. And then if we're faithful, the promise is that one day the Lord will say to us, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. If you're here tonight, you're not faithful to his cause, please come. Come home tonight. Let us pray for you and with you as we stand and sing.